Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hey everyone, welcome to the Season 3 finale episode of Seeking Witchcraft. Today I have on Tom, who some of you may remember from the PGM episode. Tom's going to talk to us today about correspondences, intention, and common misconceptions in witchcraft. So thanks so much for coming back, Tom. Hi, Ashley. Thank you for having me. Hi. Hi. So yeah, my name my name's Tom. As Ashley said, I was been here before I did the episode on the Greek Magical Papyri, or the PGM. Today, I'm here to talk to you about intention and correspondences. So a bit about me. I'm a witch. I've been practicing witchcraft since I was a kid. I'm also a gardenarian, and I also do a bit of magic drawn from the Greek magical papyri and the grimoires and other historical sources. And by day, I'm, I'm a classicist, so um, I have an interest in a sort of ancient history and Greece and Rome and all of that. Great. Well, thanks so much, Tom, for coming back. Uh, I know that you were excited to talk about this topic. <laughs> We've talked about it a little bit before, but could you tell the listeners what inspired this episode? Yeah, so I've been sort of present in some of the, sort of the uh, beginner online witch groups recently and I've seen quite a few things that I just I just wanted to talk about a little more so I've seen people saying things like rosemary can be used as a substitute for any plant uh, or that tools aren't important or that magic is all about intention and manifesting and then that one phrase that people tend to throw about a lot which is intention is everything and so I wanted to talk today a little about why I think these statements are actually a little misinformed And why I think that a lot of these ideas that get that are quite popular at the moment, that get thrown about quite a lot, actually come from what I believe to be a lack of understanding about how the history of magic has developed, and about the theory and reasoning behind why magic is done the way it is done today. Um, so what I wanted to come and do is just talk and explore a little bit, explore why magic is done the way it is, why we use the ingredients that we do in the ways that we do, and why we actually have tools and why they're important. And then I thought I would close with addressing that question of sort of is intention really everything and putting that up to a bit of scrutiny and making us think a little about this idea that is so popular and see whether it really does hold up to scrutiny. Okay, great. You know, I could definitely see or imagine some people listening to this and thinking, oh my gosh, wait, wait a second. Are you trying to tell me what to do with my practice, with my witchcraft? So what about those who say that you should follow and practice your craft the way that you like and the way that it's been working for you, even if it doesn't align perhaps with what you're going to be saying in this episode? I think that it's absolutely true that you should do your practice the way that works for you. And everybody needs to find that way. And everyone needs to grow and develop. And as they do, their practice will grow and develop with them. I'm never one to say stick slavishly to the rules. I mean, if you listen to my Greek Magical Papyri episode, that's quite the opposite of what I said. But what is important is to be informed by what has come before. Why would you throw out all those thousands of years of magical knowledge and experience that's come behind you? when you could use that and then build on it. Rather than starting from scratch, let's build on what's come before. Perfect. You know, when Tom told me this episode, I, I told him, I said, you know, I think this is going to get some people a little irritated. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to be told what to do or how to practice their witchcraft. But when he talked to me a little bit more about what this topic is going to be about and everything, uh, 
you know, he made a really good point. And the purpose of this episode is not to tell you how to practice your craft that is completely on you. But the purpose of this episode is to give an education on the references of where these correspondences come from, where this magical knowledge comes from, and to give additional information on intention and manifestation. That's a little bit different than what you're going to see in a lot of beginner groups where people are saying that intention is everything, manifest your dreams, you know, use rosemary as a substitute for anything that you'd like. (laughs) You know, Tom has done a lot of research on this topic and, you know, there's going to be things that he's talking about that I have no idea about. So I'm going to be learning right along with you. So again, this is not a talk to talk about how to practice your craft. And uh, we're not saying that you are doing something wrong if you like doing something X, Y, Z, even if it's explained here as ABC. This is just to kind of give some background information so you can make better informed decisions for your craft and, you know, test out potentially new ways of performing magic and seeing what works for you. Brilliant. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, without further ado, then let's start off with the first topic that I want to look at today, which is uh, correspondences. So I want to talk about ingredients and the, the ingredients and the correspondences we use in magic and how they actually came to be what they are. So many of the listeners out there will have read books on magic that have big lists of correspondences telling you which rocks and herbs to use for love, luck, healing, etc. And these, these things will tell you which materials correspond or sort of match up with your magical goal. However, what they don't tell you is why. Why is lavender good for peaceful communication spells? Why is blue a good colour for money magic? Now, these questions have actually been asked for thousands of years, and the magical teachers of the day have usually tried to provide an answer. One teacher is a guy called Plotinus. He, is an ancient, he was an ancient Greek philosopher. He lived in Egypt in the 3rd century AD. We're uncertain whether he actually practiced magic or not, but he certainly seems to have done something along those lines and was close friends with many of the magicians of the day. And in one of his texts, the Aeneids, he said this, How does magic work? It works by the sympathy and by the innate harmony of things that are similar and the disharmony of things that are opposite. It also works through the richness of the many powers which contribute to a living thing. So the key bit for us here is that bit where it says it works by the sympathy and the innate harmony of things that are similar. Now, you might also have heard this another similar statement, which is like attracts like. And that idea there, like attracts like, this idea of sympathy If two or more things are in sympathy, they are like each other and they attract each other. And sympathy extends not just between physical objects, but between people, ideas, experiences, events, gods and spirits. And so a correspondence list is a list of things that are in sympathy with each other, a a list of things that are magically like each other and therefore magically attract each other. And that is the underlying principle about how practical magic is said to work. It's about taking things that are like each other and using those to compose your spells to, in order to attract the thing that, is, that you want. How do we work out what is in sympathy with something else? Where do these correspondences actually come from? Who decides that, this, that the colour blue is like money? Who decided that? How did that? Where did that come from? So the first answer is that some correspondences are just really, really old and their origins are lost in the mists of time. So, for example, in the Greek magical papyri, which I talked about in a previous episode on Seeking Witchcraft, these were composed about two or more thousand years ago. And in those, there's one spell right at the beginning, PGM1, in which it associates frankincense with the sun and myrrh with the moon. And if you read lots of books on modern witchcraft today, you will see exactly the same associations. Frankincense with the sun, myrrh for the moon. And 
that tells you that actually this knowledge, some of this knowledge has actually been kept being handed down over hundreds of thousands of years. And these associations of frankincense and myrrh and the various other ones in the papyri are certainly older than the papyri. They probably come from the Egyptian temples, which may have been informed by what's going on in Babylon as well. This is really, really old, some of these correspondences. Now, some of them are a lot newer. And some correspondences also can, can also come from sort of cultural associations. So I've talked a bit about blue, which I'll explain later. But another colour that in American books on magic, particularly American ones, you'll have associated with money is the colour green. In American books on folk magic, you tend to see the colour green associated with money. Now, the Americans amongst you might immediately tweak why that is, and that's because dollar bills are green. And therefore, if we're working on the principle that like attracts like, green is a good colour to use to attract them. If I want to attract some dollar bills to me, I'm going to make a green money magic candle. It's like attracts like, the green candle is going to attract the green money. It's that simple. So another way that correspondences come about is from spirits. Those who work in spirit-based systems of magic will often find that the spirits tell them to use certain ingredients. This will then become part of a tradition, and it will become part, or might become part of the magician's personal practice. But either way, the, the spirits might say, this is good for this, and then that becomes something that we associate with that. So we looked at sort of three areas where correspondences can come from. A, they can just be really, really old, vague and lost in the midst of time. They can be from cultural associations, like the Association in America of Green with Money, because dollar bills are green. And they can be the fact that sometimes spirits will tell you what thing corresponds to something. So those are three ways. Now, the final and most common way that correspondence is devised is through something called the doctrine of signatures. Now, the doctrine of signatures is a really clever theory. And when I learned it for the first time during my training to join my group, it, it blew my mind because it suddenly helped me to make sense of so much stuff that I'd read before. And it's a theory that will allow you, as a witch, to work out the purpose of any magical ingredient if you understand the signatures. So the doctrine of signatures is a very ancient theory. It dates from the first, second century AD and the works of some ancient doctors called Dioscurides and Galen. Don't worry, you don't need to remember their names. Um, initially used for healing, this is a theory that states that a plant will resemble the part of a body which it can be used to cure. That's really cool. Yeah, exactly. So for example, if, if a plant looks like a foot, it was thought that it's probably good for treating foot problems. Now, it's most basic, that's really interesting. It, was, it informed sort of a lot of early approaches to medicine. And then in the Middle Ages, it got further developed. So in the Middle Ages, just one sort of thing that's important to understand is there was no real distinction between medicine, astrology, and sort of natural magic. It would all have come under the title natural philosophy. So medieval medicine was rooted in astrology. And so for the medieval doctors, it was important for them to understand which plant corresponded with each of the seven classical planets. A question. Just because I I have no real background in astrology other than when Tiana has come on and uh, talked about it. And this might just be a super basic question that everybody else knows the answer to but me, which I will totally admit to because I don't know anything about astrology, really. <laughs> How did they know what plant corresponded to each planet? The, uh, but just, uh, just to make sure everyone's clear on what the seven classical planets are, I probably should explain. Those, those are the planets that can be seen with the naked eye. So it's the sun and the moon. I know they're not actually planets, but the medieval people didn't know that. Um, Mars, Venus, Mercury, Saturn, and Jupiter. So those are the planets that we're dealing with here in this kind of magic. And this is where the seduction of signatures came in. So as, you said, as I said, actually, before we had that idea that the, if it looks like a foot, it can treat foot problems. Well, what they, what they then developed on this was that each plant, and indeed any natural material, has identifying signatures or qualities so a signature basically means a quality 
that tells you which planet it is ruled by. So a just as if a plant looks like a foot, it's good for curing feet. If a plant looks like it has martial signatures, so signatures, qualities to do with the planet Mars, then it's going to be good for treating illnesses and magical work that come under the auspices of the planet Mars. So, for example, chilies. Chilies are associated with Mars because they're fiery and red. Fiery and redness are martial qualities. This means they are useful in spells for things that Mars rule over, for example, war and self-defence. Sunflowers are solar because they are bright yellow and turn to follow the sun throughout the day. So they follow the sun, the flowers turn following the sun throughout the day. So that means they must have some kind of attraction to it. That must mean they are in sympathy with it. I read once that if sunflowers can't find the sun, they face each other. Oh, that's lovely. I know. Isn't that so cute? I mean, there was a whole meme about it where the sunflower is like, you're my son. And the other sunflower is like, bro. (laughs) (laughs) It was really cute. They're in sympathy with the sun. They have that solar energy about them. So if they can't see the sun itself, they look at each other. There we go. That's just another sort of why this, this magic is so special. A, um, it's very wholesome. Meme fuel, which is all you can want to have a magical system. No, I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, but yellow is a solar car. They follow the sun. They're in sympathy with it. So that means it's going to be useful for, they're going to be useful for solar spells. And a spell to the sun might be a spell for victory, a spell for success, a spell for healing. And then I talked about earlier about lavender and about how lavender is good for peaceful communication. So lavender is associated with mercury. And that's because the essential oil, the oils you extract from lavender are very, very volatile. That's why you can smell lavender bushes so strongly and why lavender essential oil is so popular. It's a very volatile oil, which means it turns to gas very easily, which means you can it's very, very fragrant. It smells very strong. And this quality of volatility, this quality of being able to change states of matter, of changing from liquid to gas, is uh, very quickly, is a mercurial quality. It's ruled by the planet Mercury because he is a trickster god. He's a shape-changing god. So that trickster sort of element of that ability to change from one form to another as the lavender oils do, is mercurial. And mercury rules over communication. So if you're going to cast a communication spell, then mercury, then lavender would be good for that. And obviously lavender can help you sleep as well. So that kind of like soporific effect of it makes it particularly good if you want to sort of get some peaceful communication. If things are getting a bit heated and you want to cool them down, a nice sort of bag of lavender that you've enchanted with your purpose um, can be really useful. So to sum up, sort of the, the underlying um, principle behind these correspondences, behind the doctrine of signatures, is that the physical appearance and the physical nature of an ingredient can tell you about its uses for magic. If you know the different planetary signatures, you can identify which plants and therefore which magical goals, sorry, which they can t- identify which planets and therefore which magical goals an ingredient is in sympathy with or corresponds with. And this is really, really ancient. It's been for at least 2,000 years, but it's a principle that's probably around a lot longer than that. And it is where all the sort of the magical, the sort of correspondences you'll see in magical books is where most of them come from. Does that make sense, actually? Is there any questions you'd like to ask about that that you think the listeners might want to know? You know, I am just thinking about how if somebody were to look at a plant and say, okay, well, I don't really see any resemblance to any sort of human body or, you know, it also kind of makes me think of when, say you're, you're looking at the clouds with your friends and one person says they see a duck and another person says they see a sheep and another person says, you guys are all high. I don't see anything. That's just a cloud. (laughs) I'm just trying, trying to think like how, how much trial and error there was back then when they said, okay, well, this kind of looks like a foot 
did everybody kind of have to agree like oh yeah that does look like a foot like what if there was that one person of that looks like a flower guys what are you talking about (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure there was some of that and i think um it is a little more sophisticated than i think i probably gave it credit for um but I, I think why I would say is don't the, the foot thing. I wouldn't focus on that because that's not the bit that really informs the way we do magic now. It's that later bit. It's the medieval, a planetary bit. And if you want to understand that, then you need to think about you need to learn a little bit about planetary magic and about the what the different planets are associated with and what they have in common. The different plants that are ruled by them. So just briefly, so marsh, so plant, plant, plants that are ruled by Mars will be red. They'll be hot, spicy, fiery. Uh, they might be spiky. Um, they'll have, um, they'll often have sort of like five petals on the flower. Venusian plants, so ones ruled by the planet Venus, will be have sort of big, beautiful flowers and be very sort of uh, fertile and reproduce very quickly and smell really, really sweet and fragrant. And that's because Venus is the planet of beauty and sweetness and um, sex and fertility. Plants that are ruled by Saturn, you tend they tend to be a lot of the climbing plants, a lot of the uh, sort of like quite sort of like constricting viney type plants like ivy, um, because Saturn is a planet of binding, of boundaries and restrictions. So plants that bind and restrict, like ivy, that grow up and around their what this sort of the host um, plant, they're very Saturnine. And if you want to learn more about them, then to learn more about what these different signatures are so that you can look at a plant and say, I think it's that planet, then I would recommend um, Cornelius Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy. Uh, now, this is a, it's, uh, written in the early modern period. It's, it's, a fa- it's a foundational text of the Western occult movement. Most of the books on magic you see today will in some way be informed by Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy. He basically took all these this correspondences and magical ideas that were floating around at the time and put them into three books. Um, and he describes the qualities of lunar herbs, of martial herbs, and explains what some of the signatures are. So if you want to understand this, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a tough read, um, but there have just been some new English translations out, um, which are really, really good. The one by Black Letter Press is beautiful and um, a very easy read, so I'd recommend. There's also another book that I recommend for this is Nicholas Culpepper's Herbal. Now, this is a medieval herbal. A herbal is a book of herbs, and it gives the, the healing properties of a whole range of herbs that were found in England at the time. And it gives their astrological associations and the planets and star signs that rule them. And this, if you read this, you'll sort of look at the different herbs and list kind of which ones associated with different planets. You'll start to see patterns of the sort of the healing properties and the physical nature of the herbs in kind of like how they're made, what sort of the chemical properties they have. Um, because that will, because that it's all those physical features that tell you which planet rules them. Um, the final book I would recommend is The Witching Herbs by Harold Roth. This is a much more modern book, you'd be relieved to know. This one only came out a few years ago. Um, and this book looks in detail at 13 herbs. And it explains the doctrine of signatures. It was where I first learned about it. And what it does really well is it explains the theory, but then it shows you how to apply it. Because as it goes through each of the 13 herbs, it explains in detail what the signatures of the herb are. So you can tell which planet it's ruled by. And it also gives you loads of other interesting folklore and magical stuff about them. So that's a brilliant book. And if you want to kind of, if you're thinking, oh my God, this is all very confusing. I need to sit down and read it through a few times. Then I'd suggest The Witching Herbs by Harold Roth. 
Um, so before we continue, I talked about so why does this matter, like other than for historical interest? Well, for witches today, if you understand why ingredients are used, you can make informed choices about substitutions and actually understand why spells are constructed the way they are. So rather than just sort of like following a spell blindly from a book because that's what it says, you'll understand why. You'll understand why they've put that together. And if you need to change something, you'll know what the, the thing you're changing was, was the original thing was doing, so you can change if something that's doing something similar. And hope that you'll realise as well that ingredients are not about intention. You must choose them according to your intent. You need to choose ingredients that match up with what you want. But you can't change the nature of an ingredient with your intention. You can't decide that you want lavender to be to equal war, so lavender suddenly becomes spiky. That's not how it works. Lavender isn't spiky. Lavender has volatile oils. Lavender is mercurial. You can't change that with your intention, so instead you need to find a herb that matches what you want. And the ingredients in spells have been carefully chosen according to certain principles. So you can apply these same principles in creating your own spells and making substitutions. So in this respect, magic is a bit like cooking. A good cook knows about which ingredients produce which flavours and in which combinations, and thus can construct their own dishes. If they are following a recipe and need to make a substitution, they know which flavours are similar. A substitution will always change a recipe slightly. For example, if you substitute onions when the recipe calls for milder shallots, then you'll get a stronger oniony flavour. Likewise, in a love spell, if the love spell calls for sugar, but you use cayenne pepper, it'll still work, but rather than attracting someone nice and sweet, you're going to get someone hot and fiery. The sex might be better, but they won't be quite as nice. <laughs> <laughs> and also, if you think, as some apparently do, that rosemary works as a substitute for any herb, you're going to be a pretty crap chef. So, yeah, the ingredients you use do matter. And this is where the principles behind them come from. So absolutely do go and do your own spells, but think about why you're using the things you're using. It kind of makes me think of, you know, you're using the cooking reference. And I like that because it makes me think of when people will do uh, ritual baths and they'll use different herbs and such in their baths, you know, telling yourself that rosemary is the equivalent and you can use it in place of any herb might not work if your ritual bath is supposed to be something where... I don't know, using the cayenne pepper as an example, like you wouldn't want to put cayenne pepper in your bath. Um, you might want to put rosemary instead. Rosemary obviously isn't going to substitute for cayenne pepper. I don't know if this makes sense of what I'm trying to say, but, but what I'm trying to say is, you know, they are very different and distinct herbs yeah. and they don't equal the same thing. And if you're going to be putting those in your ritual bath, you're going to get a much different outcome using something like cayenne pepper versus something like rosemary. So putting your intention into one doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the properties of the herb are going to do. Well, exactly. And even if, you, <laughs> like, exactly. And even if you take it out of the realms of the magical and just focus on sort of the purely like therapeutic, like if you're doing like aromatherapy, then the different scents have different effects. Like lavender makes you feel a different way to, I don't know, rose or to pepper oil. And just using one oil in the place of all of them isn't going to cut it because they, they make you feel different ways. So, yeah, yeah. And, you know, overarching aromatherapy can be relaxing regardless of the scent that you use. But if you're trying to get into the nitty gritty of it, there is going to be a difference between smelling something that's based off of lavender versus something that's based off of a citrus like a lemon or an orange. They do have different properties. 
Yeah, exactly. It's the same in magic. Same in cooking, same in magic. And it's the one one thing cannot possibly do the the job of everything. Otherwise, we'd only have one thing. That'd be a very boring world. Now, does this yeah. apply to rose qu- or to clear quartz? Would you say? <laughs> I'll be honest, I don't use crystals very much in my practice at all. So I um, wouldn't feel qualified to say beyond the fact that, yeah, clear quartz you can use for a lot of things. I think it's quite a blank slate that you can sort of place power into. But again, if you want specific help with a specific thing, you want a specific rock that's got those specific qualities. It's not, I mean, it's a bit like with candles. I mean, with like like candles, yes, you can use a white candle if you don't have any other colour because white is a kind of a blank slate. You can just kind of imprint your intention, imprint your... uh, power onto but if you want that extra bit of help then a color that corresponds to your goal is better because it matches it's in sympathy with what you want it matches it it's going to attract that more easily all of these things by building the more sort of like signatures and correspondences you build into your magic the easier you're making it for yourself you can just do it with a white candle and a piece of quartz if you want to i'm sure you'll get all right results but if you want to go deeper and get better results and push yourself and achieve more then you're going to need to start being more precise yeah and and i want to uh just make a statement too that if somebody is listening to this and they're wondering okay well why why can we use a white candle in place for anything but we can't do the same with herbs you know white white candles have all the colors in them which is why you are able to use them in place of anything but herbs are are very specific items in terms of Using a clear quartz, I will agree with Tom. I'm not well-versed in crystals. Maybe I should have somebody come on and talk about crystals. <laughs> That's also <laughs> not a topic that I'm super qualified to discuss. I don't use a lot in my daily practice, although I do have a couple here and there. Um, but yeah, so, so there is a little bit of a distinction between using a white candle versus using any herb as a substitution. Yeah, as you say, the her- herbs are specific, but sort of a white candle contains all the colors. Absolutely. So, so moving on from these ideas about correspondences i wanted to touch briefly on tools because it is very fashionable to say that you don't need them they're just props it's all about you it's all about your intentions all about the power of your mind i and most other people who've been doing this for for a while will not agree with that I, i think i'll be honest i think it's nonsense it's true you don't need tools to do a lot of magic i spent years practicing witchcraft with hardly any But tools do have a purpose. And as you progress on your path, you will start to find you need them. You'll start to see why you need them. And the reason tools are important are for very similar reasons to why ingredients are important. So first of all, using physical tools and physical ingredients provides a material basis for your magic. By doing your magic with material objects, you are recognising that you are living in the physical world and you want physical change. To quote Madonna... We are living in a material world and I'm a material girl. <laughs> you, it's, if you're looking to make material change, you need material ingredients. So because your ingredients and tools, they provide sort of a physical anchor and attraction for the magical forces you invoke. And tools are constructed according to the same principles as correspondences. So, for example, a cup is used to represent water as it's a container of fluid. It contains water, therefore it's in sympathy with it. It also loosely resembles the shape of the womb thus having associations with the powers of life and fertility. So if you want to invoke these forces, like the waters of life, the sort of the, the, god, the water goddess, the, the sort of beginning of creation, that kind of thing, then a consecrated cup is useful. And that's been about useful. Tools make it easier to do magic because they make it easier to attract certain forces. 
They are in sympathy with the forces you're trying to do. They're in sympathy with your goals. Therefore, they make it easier. Yes, you can try doing magic without them. And when you're just doing small things, that's perfectly possible. But as you move on to bigger, more difficult workings, more complex things, tools become essential. Because it's a bit like trying to lift up a boulder. It's very difficult to do if you just do it with your arms. But if you have a lever, it becomes a lot easier. And another reason tools are important is for connecting you to magical traditions. So if you go on to join any traditions or groups, uh, each tradition will have its own tools that its members are expected to acquire or make. And the process of making them introduces the magician to the powers of that tradition. It shows their dedication. It helps the witch to access traditions egregore. That's the collective uh, mind, the collective power current of that tradition. And so by making these tools, you are keying into that power. And you don't have to be part of a tradition to do that. So the one of the things that you'll see, some of the most common magical tools in Western magic are the knife, the cup, the wand and the pentacle. These are the four elemental weapons. This They were codified by the Golden Dawn in the early 20th century. Now, if you consecrate and you'd have to put some research into this, but if you consecrate your cup, wand, knife, and pentacle properly, then what you're actually doing is connecting it to the pentacle, the wand, the knife, the cup, the, the tool that exists on kind of on the, in the, the, in the, on the astral plane that's all tools that have been consecrated in that way are connected to. And so if you want access to that power, if you want access to the, the power of the cup or the wand or the knife or the pentacle, then by consecrating it in a certain way, you can connect it to that power. And so and so part of that, so using tools can help you connect to power beyond yourself. And so another reason that tools we use tools um, is because if you're again, if you're working in a spirit-based system of magic, as many witches do, spirits respond to them. They respond to physical tools and they expect you to have them. So take the true grimoire, for example, fantastic grimoire. If you're interested in grimoire magic, um, these are the sort of uh, medieval and Renaissance books on magic, I would recommend the true grimoire. In that system, you conjure spirits in order to make pacts with them, make agreements with them. But to do that, you need a set of tools that have been made according to the right specifications, consecrated and kept clean. And by having these tools, you are signalling to the spirits that you are willing to put in the work and that you respect them. By keeping them clean, you are showing that you are... It's, it's just politeness. Like You, you wouldn't serve uh, your dinner to guests on dirty crockery. In the same way, you consecrate and specially prepare your tools for these spirits. In this system, you trace the magic circle with a consecrated blade. And this same blade is used to help protect you from the spirits. Now, this would be a moment where intention would not be enough here. The spirits don't, in this, these systems, just like in the PGM, they don't care what you're thinking. They are responding to the physical knife. It is the physical knife that keeps them at bay. It is the physical knife that creates that space, not your thoughts. Your thoughts are important. You need them, but you need the knife. Finally, I would, I would argue, just from my own experience of making tools for various magical systems, is that the preparation of tools is also the preparation of the witch. In making tools, you are you are, you are are setting your intentions. You're taking that first step towards whatever magic you're looking to do. You're saying, I'm setting out to do this, so I'm making this tool. And when you do that, when you start the physical process of making it, you are signaling to the spirits that you are ready to work. And so they're going to start working on you. In the process of making the tools, you will learn a lot about yourself and the magic you are doing, as well as basic crafting skills. But it's the physical process, the physical tools, the physical ingredients and the physical actions that get the magic going. So that's so for summary, why tools are important. It's because they 
are co connected to uh, constructed according to the same principles of correspondences. They make it easier for you to do magic because they are in sympathy with what you're working for. They connect you to power beyond yourself. If you're working with spirit-based systems, the spirits expect them, the spirits respond to them. And by having them, you are signaling you're ready to do the work and are respect the spirits. Um, and also preparing the tools help prepare you. The preparation process will change you. It's a magical process that helps you grow and develop as a witch. You know, you you bring up um, a really good point earlier about the tools and comparing it to, I think you, you called it a levy, but maybe using um, just like a lift or something where if you need to pit, move something that's really heavy, you know, you can try to move it yourself. You might eventually get it, but it's easier if you have some sort of machinery that can help you do it. And I just want to point that out that tools are definitely there to aid you there. They do make things a little bit easier, <laughs> uh, but I do recognize as well that, you know, there are some people listening to this who aren't able to have tools for one reason or another, whether it's financial reasons or if you're in the broom closet and, or uh, maybe you're just not ready for a tool. Maybe you might feel like that's a leap that you're not just quite there yet. Um, and that's completely valid. It's not an absolute requirement to have a tool, but if you get the chance, I'd recommend it. <laughs> they do make things a little bit heavier. I will say for the majority of uh, my craft when I was younger, before I really started um, heavily getting involved in witchcraft and Wicca, I didn't have any tools at all. I didn't even have a wand. I barely had an incense burner, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and that's okay because, you know, we all have to start somewhere. And, um, you know, so I guess I just want to reiterate, if you don't have any tools, don't feel bad about it. Uh, but if you do have tools or if you are interested in getting tools, I would highly recommend that they do make things a lot easier, as Tom said. Yeah, I'd reiterate that. Please never, ever feel bad that you don't have the tools or you can't get the right herbs or anything like that. This is I'm not with what I'm saying here. I'm not trying to say that you're a crap witch if you don't have these things or don't understand these things. I'm just trying to show you why these things are important to people and why you may want them in the future. It's not if you can't have them now, for whatever reason, that is not a problem. As I said, I didn't work with, I didn't have many tools for years. I didn't understand the doctrine of signatures for years. That's fine. It's all part of the journey. Now into the hot topic that's going to piss some people off. Oh yeah, it's going <laughs> to piss people off. So here we go. Having, here we go. Having discussed ingredients, correspondences, and tools, I'm hoping that you listeners are starting to see my views on intention, which are that it is most assuredly not in any way, not even close. To everything. So I want to dive a little more closely at this idea now, this idea of intention. Why I think that the idea of intention and everything really does make, make no sense at all. But don't worry, I'm not going to entirely shit all over intention. I, it, it is important, and I will explain why I think it is important as well. But I'm going to start by just bringing it down a few pegs, because it's been put on a pedestal it does not deserve. So it is true that setting intention is a very useful practice. So setting intentions is where you, you might, if you're journaling or something like that, you might say, I am going to do this. I'm going to get this. I feel good about this. It's a, it's a positive sort of affirmation and declaration that you are going to achieve something. And this is a really useful thing to do. It helps you to be clear about what you want. It helps you to feel positive about achieving it. It allows you to be mindful about your actions and confident as you approach life. It's very simple, very effective popular psychology. I would argue, though, that it, it isn't really magic, or at least it's only the very first step of magic. Because setting your intentions won't make what you want happen. To get something you want, you have to go out and actually make it happen. You have to physically do something. 
there's a big gap between intending something and actually doing it. It's true that our thoughts have power, that our, by, by thinking something we can make it happen, but I, but I think actually a lot of beginner witches massively overestimate the power of their thoughts. Someone asked a question in a beginner witch group recently about why, when they think positively about something, it doesn't always happen. So they think, oh yes, I'm definitely going to get this job interview, definitely going to get this job, but then they don't get it. But other times, when they think negatively about something, where they're like, oh shit, this is never going to work out, he's never going to say yes to me, he's never going to go on this date with me, and then he does. Well, that doesn't make any sense, because if you're thinking, if positive thinking didn't get that thing, but negative thinking got that thing, well, that just flies in the face of everything we know about manifestation, about intention. If it really worked that you could set your intentions and think positively about something and you would get it, and likewise, if you thought negatively about something, you wouldn't, then the scenario I just described wouldn't happen. Well, unfortunately, the scenario I just described does. It happens all the time. Shit happens. And that's because intention is not everything, and our thoughts are not all powerful, and the world is a strange, chaotic place. You can focus your intentions as hard as you like and be so positive the sun practically shines out your ass, but sometimes things still won't go your way. That isn't your fault. Because honestly, unless you're a Buddhist monk who has spent decades meditating for 12 hours a day, you're probably not powerful enough to change the world with your thoughts alone. Because as I said, material goal, material world, as long as you're living in a physical body, in a physical world, it's your actions that matter, not just your thoughts. So the other issue with the idea that intention is everything is that it, it makes it all about you, which it isn't. There are many different forces at play in the world. There are natural ones like gravity. There are human ones like corporations, governments, and the actions of individual people. And if you're a witch, you probably believe or know that there are other spiritual forces out there too. And each of these forces has their own agenda, their own intentions, their own reason for being. And these won't always match up with yours. Therefore, if you want them to listen to you, if you want to change things, you have to take action. The world is going to judge you by what you do, not what you intended. After all, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, as the saying goes. And intention is, and in this so this idea that intention is everything, it just discounts a, it discounts lived experience. It discounts the fact that you can intend something to happen with all your will and it still doesn't. It can in, it discounts the fact that other people out there have their own intentions. And who is the universe supposed to listen to? Because everyone's got their own things they want, they're striving to. And so if you... And all the other thing is that I think if you insist that magic is all about intention, then you're never going to learn. You're never going to grow because you'll never be able to see beyond the end of your nose. The minute you realise that it's not all about you and your intention, that practitioners have been using certain tools and ingredients for centuries for a reason, and that things are done a certain way for a reason, well, that's when you look up, that's when you start to grow, that's when you start to engage with other people in the world around you, and you start having to take actual physical action to make the changes you want. So I said I wouldn't shit all over intention. I know it was from that quite strong, but I promise you intention is useful for some things. It is still important. And that's because you need to know what you want, which is, frankly, easier said than done. When starting out in magic, it's a good idea to learn how to form a statement of intent. Okay, This is what you want the spell to do. So when you're formulating a spell in your mind, you need to interrogate what you desire. Ask yourself questions. Go, okay, do I want this? Why do I want it? Is there something else that I want more? What's really driving this? And then when you figure out what you really, really want, you then try and express it in the simplest way possible in a very short sentence. 
The process of doing this will enhance your magic and your understanding of yourself. This is something that I've had time and time again in my training. My high priestess will often sit me down and question me about why I want to do this particular spell and make me really think about it, ask me awkward questions until I finally come up with a satisfactory answer. And in that process, you actually figure out what you really want. You find And you find the emotional, the powerful emotion that will help you fuel the spell. You find that emotional core that's making you want it. And that's what really gives spells their kick, that emotion. Uh, to practice this, I'd suggest to everyone, because this is also because it's so easy and useful, I would suggest studying sigil magic, because um, that's all about creating statements of intent and using them effectively. But it's that statement of intent is only the first step. Once you've found your intention, you've found what you want, you haven't done any magic yet. You then have to cast the spell. And that's when you start to think about the ingredients you're going to use, the tools you're going to use, the powers you're going to call upon, thinking about what's in sympathy with what you're asking for. You've still got to cast the spell. And once you've cast that spell, there's still something else you've got to do. You've got to take practical action in the real world because spells, need you need to give them something to work with. You've got to go out there and take the real world action that will help your will manifest in the world and that's what makes magic happens it's the action it's the things you use and the way you use them that's what makes it work and then the physical things you do in the real world afterwards that is what makes your intentions real the intentions are the starting point but they are definitely not everything they're not the only thing the action is just as if not more important so would you loop together manifestation and intention in the same category (sighs) i suppose it depends what you mean by manifestation and I think that if by manifestation you simply mean that I'm going to think positively about something and so I'm going to make it happen just by thinking positively about it, I would say that can sometimes work because sometimes all you need is just to be a little bit pe- little less pessimistic and go for it. <laughs> but that's not always enough sometimes you need actual magic and that's where spells come in so yeah i would again i would say i'd link manifestation with intention i say manifestation is your first step it's by no means your last one cool oh sorry no just to sum up so i said just sum up what i've said really so i've covered quite a lot so i've so i've explained the ingredient why the ingredients in spells are chosen and how they're chosen according to the principle that like attracts like and about how objects and concepts that are alike that correspond to each other are in sympathy with each other they attract each other and you can figure out which ingredients to use in spells using this principle and the doctrine of signatures. The doctrine of signatures is the idea that physical objects have identifying qualities that show their magical use. And tools work on the same principles and designed to make it easier to contact certain forces and prepare the witch for that work. And all of this shows how intention is not everything. The tools and the ingredients magicians have used for centuries really do matter. Magic, and indeed real life, is not all about you and your intentions, but how you make those intentions happen through action. This is not about trying to make you practice a certain way. I'm not trying to say do this this way. I'm just saying it's about showing you where magic as we practice it today has come from, why magical traditions work the way they do, and just getting you to think a little more deeply about why we do things. Because this will then allow you to develop your own practice in a way that builds on what's come before, rather than having to start from scratch. Yeah, no, no. So thank you so much, Tom, for talking about all of this. You know, I think as was said in the beginning of the episode, it's important to know that the information on this episode is not to tell you to practice your witchcraft any sort of way. You know, if you do want to use rosemary as a substitute, if that's what's worked for you for your entire practice, then by all means, do what works for you and what you feel comfortable doing with. However, I would challenge you to 
do what Tom is talking about in this episode, you know, now that you know a little bit more about the background and the education of and the references of where this magical knowledge comes from, you know, maybe tweak it and, you know, who knows, you might see some more impactful and powerful results than you did if you were just using the same thing to substitute. You know, I think witchcraft and magic is, uh, it, it involves a lot of experimentation. And I think that, you know, this would be a great opportunity to experiment to see, you know, if what you've been doing in the past uh, lines up with what Tom has been sharing today about different correspondences and such. So, yeah, I think this has been super educational, super great to know about. (laughs) You know, I'm super stoked that you came on, Tom. I definitely learned a lot. I did not know about uh, people talking about how herbs correspond to the different parts of the body that they look like back in the day. I thought that was really interesting. Um, Definitely going to take that with me (laughs) and tell people (laughs) about that. That was news to me. Uh, Yeah. So that was great. With these correspondences and intentions and and everything that we talked about in today's episodes, if people wanted to get more information about this, do you have any books that you'd recommend? Yeah. So as I said, I'd reiterate the ones I mentioned in correspondences. So I'd reiterate Mm -hmm. uh, the Perfect. The Agrippa's Three Books for Cult Philosophy, Harold Roth's 13 Witching Herbs, and Nicholas Culpepper's Herbal. I'd also suggest for learning a bit more about um, intention um, and how it can read, it can actually be used in magic, as opposed to some of the newer ideas about it, I would suggest um, some books on sigil magic. And the best ones for that are um, Sigil Magic by Freyta UD, uh, Chaos Protocols by Gordon White, um, Six Ways by Aidan Watchter, um, and also, there's actually um, an online online courses offered by Trebles Bookshop that um, by this guy called Mark Vincent, and he runs courses on sigil magic and like using intention effectively in magic. And I've been on one of his course, several of his courses, and they're brilliant. So if you want to learn more about this kind of thing about how to actually use intention in magic, then I would suggest his courses as well. You know, I'd also recommend uh, Tom has a article about intention and not being everything. So Tom, I don't know if you want to talk about where they can find that because I would definitely recommend your article. Thank you. Yeah, that's on my blog, which is uh, called Cross Country Witchcraft. It's crosscountrywitchcraft.wordpress.com. You can all, I share that with my friend Kim, and we write about all kinds of witchcraft topics. And the most recent one um, was on intention and why intention is not everything. Um, I'm also on Twitter um, at Tom MacArthur777. Um, I've also um, in the, the Seeking Witchcraft Facebook group, the Facebook group for this podcast, I'm on there. Um, so if you have any thoughts or vehement disagreement with this episode, feel free to post in there and I will try and respond. Um, I've also done the, uh, you also can find me on the, uh, Greek magical papyri episode, which I did with, uh, with Ashley on Seeking Witchcraft. And I've also got a talk about the magical papyri online, uh, for the Doreen Valiente Foundation. Um, so those are all the places you can find me. Great. And um, for those who are questioning, I'll go through my socials in a moment, but the Facebook group that he's talking about is called Witches Seeking Witchcraft. So you can find it on Facebook. Make sure you answer the questions if you'd like to join. But uh, before before getting into the, the ending of this, you know, um, Tom, as you know, I always ask people um, some advice for a brand new beginner. So if you can give one piece of advice to somebody who's just starting out, maybe somebody who doesn't have any tools, <laughs> you know, <laughs> anything, um, what would you recommend to somebody? Um, two things. So I suppose this is one that I think is not just for beginner witches, it's for pretty much everyone in life. Um, is to just remember that it's not all about you, that there is more going on than your own than what you want in this situation. And so if you want to make something happen, you need to put real thought in about how you're going to do that. Um, the other thing, I think this is for 
useful for people who don't maybe have tools, don't have lots of ingredients. And for, but also just for anyone who wants to sort of progress with their practice is to think about why a spell is put together the way it is. Why does it call for those ingredients and actions? Why does it do those things? Because if you begin to understand why, then you can start to devise spells that work with what you have. Because you'll understand how to use the things that you have. And just don't put it all down to intention. It's more complicated than that. And that's what makes it fun. <laughs> you know, you make a really good point, especially with your your for- first piece of advice that I just want to reiterate how, um, you know, the, the the phrase of it's not always about you and, and how you need to do a little bit more with your magic. And, you know, that brings up a good point where I'll see people on beginner witch groups posting things about, you know, hey, I need a spell to lose 10 pounds or I need a spell to get a job. Um, you know, things of that nature. And I think it's important to know that, yes, you can you can create a spell. You could do some sigil magic, some candle magic, you know, whatever you want to do to help, let's just say, get a job. However, sure, you could do the magic for that. But magic isn't everything. You need to put in the effort on your end as well to actually have that follow through. Because if you're doing a spell to get a job, you actually need to put in the job applications. <laughs> You do. I can tell you from experience, you do. It's- yep, yep, you do. It's going to be very unlikely that someone's just going to approach you or knock on your door and say, hey, would you like a job? Um, if they do, I mean, you know, hey, sometimes magic does work like that. I won't discount that because I've had that experience in my life, not necessarily with the job, but other aspects. However, nine and a half times out of 10, you have to put in the back work to put in um, or to get the ball rolling for your spell to have something to kind of catch on to so it can work. Yeah, it's a bit like doing it's a bit like doing a spell to get a new partner and never leaving your house. You're never going to meet someone if you don't leave your house. If you're going to cast spells to get a partner, you need to start going on some dates. Like it's, it's just, yeah. Damn, way to call me out, Tom. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Next time you come for me like that, just send a town car. <laughs> but but yeah i mean you know again like if you're trying to do a spell to say you have a couple pounds that you would like to lose for whatever reason you know you could do a spell for that but you're not going to actually get any results if you're sitting on your couch you know the majority of your day eating cheese puffs um you're going to need to get up and and uh you know actually put in some work and maybe eat a little bit healthier or get a little bit more active And this is actually a good conversation for maybe another episode about being specific with your spells. And Tom talked a little bit about this, but, you know, if you want to do a spell, let's say you want to lose weight. Somebody who's just starting out, for example, might say something like, okay, I want to lose five pounds. I'm going to do a spell to lose five pounds. Well, I think a better thing, a better way to direct that would be not necessarily as losing the weight because like, you don't know what those five pounds are going to be. <laughs> you want to be careful. Yeah. Maybe, you know, there's something that will get taken off of you that weighs five pounds. That was not not a good thing to get taken out, like a spleen or something. I don't know how much they weigh. I'm just giving an example. <laughs> you know, a better way to phrase that type of spell work would be to say something like, I want, or, I, you know, doing a spell to become more motivated to... Um, become more active, but then you also need to be careful of why you're being motivated. Uh, you know, cause this motivation could come in the, the face of a health scare, which you don't want either. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, but as I mentioned, you know, this is, this could be a topic for another episode, but, um, it is important to be specific and to know that you do have to put in the action yourself if you want a spell to work. Can I just say on that note, I think, of course. Right. and I think that if you, if you don't, you need to know, 
what I talked a bit about, about knowing what you want and how that's easier said than done. And that losing weight example is a really good one. Because you might say, right, I want to lose weight. But then you need to question, okay, why do you want to lose weight? Is it because you want to be healthier? Is it because you feel that would make you prettier? Is it because for some other reason? Who, like, or you want to fit into a top for your sister's wedding? Like, it could be anything, but you need to think, why? Because you might be better off enchanting for that. If it's to be healthier, then it might be you might want to be enchanting for good health. If it's to feel if it's to feel prettier, then you might want to enchant for that. It could be it's having that when you when you first get the initial want, take a moment to think about okay, why do I want this? Because you then might discover an intention that's actually easier to achieve and and better and easier to enchant for. So you're more likely to get it, and you're actually likely to be happier because actually. If you think you want, if you don't want something, but you're enchanting for it because you think you should have it or you should want it, you won't get it. Trying to enchant for something you don't want is a complete waste of time. I've tried. It doesn't work. Um, I remember I once tried to enchant to sell a house that I didn't actually want to sell, um, but I just felt I should. Didn't work. Um, so, yeah, one, knowing what you really want and being really sure about that is key as well. Yeah, I talked about that on my last episode I did with my friend Nicole about how there was a time I really wanted to do some magic, but I knew damn well in that moment that my heart was saying something that my mouth would have said completely different. You know, my energy was not matching up with the type of magic that I wanted to do. And I, I recognized that and I said, okay, I'm not, I'm not doing this because I already know this is not going to end well. This is, it's not going to be good. My intention wasn't there, Tom. Well, but, this is, but that's the bit where intention <laughs> is important. That's where intention is important. It's just not the whole mm-hmm. thing. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, well, awesome. Um, you know, Tom gave his social information. Mine is pretty much if you look up Seeking Witchcraft, you'll find me. I'm Seeking Witchcraft Podcast on Facebook. On Twitter, I'm Seek Witchcraft, all one word. Instagram is Seeking Witchcraft. As I mentioned before, we do have a Facebook group for people who listen to the show. It's Witches Seeking Witchcraft. You know, you'll run into some people who may have been on previous episodes, such as Tom running, you know, on that on that uh, that group. So, you know, if you have any questions for him, feel free to post in the group and he'll find them. <laughs> he'll he'll see your posts. I'll make sure that he does, if not. And uh, I do have a Patreon as well. If you are interested in supporting the show, you know, uh, earlier I actually posted some questions. If anybody had things to ask Tom for this episode, um, I asked my Patreon people if they wanted me to forward anything along. We also have a Discord page and we do a uh, book club as well. So if anyone's interested in supporting the show on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash seeking witchcraft. And yeah, that's pretty much it for me. Um, Tom, thank you again so much for coming on. I, I think this has been such a great episode. I've, I've really appreciated it. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great fun. Okay. Well, thank you everybody for listening to the season finale. I didn't even realize this is going to be the season finale episode, but oh my gosh, <laughs> finally got through the third season of Seeking Witchcraft. It's just really exciting. I already have the next episode planned for the beginning of season four. That information is going to be sent to my Patreon users first. Otherwise, stay tuned and... I will talk with you all very soon. Thanks so much. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.